fear was that there was a killer at large here who could strike anywhere. But already, we knew it already struck in in Leeds and Bradford and was now you know, striking in one of the nearby towns. We're with a young officer in the 1970s looking for a killer with the dreadful nickname the Yorkshire Ripper. Police don't know it, but they have the murderer in their sights. Those three lines of inquiry did the trick in terms of identifying the killer. How does a series of letters from a hoaxer derail Britain's biggest manhunt? And this was the one that said, um, you say eight, but don't forget Preston 75. What does Preston 75 mean? And what dark coincidences make the lead detective believe the crank notes? Yeah, we've got him. We must have, something's broken. We've got him, he's going to tell us we've got him. And we were absolutely buzzing. You know, we thought this is a, we'd never been called back before. And as the hoaxer's campaign intensifies, a police force is blindsided by a new development. And the whole place was just silent. It was deathly silent. And he went click and played it. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from the people who were involved. Victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'll be making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. If you want to see evidence from each inquiry, watch video clips, read more or get in touch, just subscribe to the Behind the Crime site and please do rate and review our podcast. A word of warning, this is a crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions you might find affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This three-part mini-series describes the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, who went by the nickname deemed appropriate in the 1970s, the Yorkshire Ripper. This phrase is extremely distressing to the families of the victims and I have avoided using it wherever possible but sometimes, unfortunately, it is the only term I can use. This mini-series is called Deadly Deception, Episode 1, The Letters. The first murder was in the early hours of October the 30th, 1975. Wilma McCann was 28 years old, a mother of four who'd been on a night out. She lived in the Chapeltown area of Leeds. At that time, Chris Gregg was a young probationary uniformed constable. He wasn't involved in that case, but he watched from afar as the serial killer's list of victims started to grow. As a, as a PC at Huddersfield, just getting on with my probationary responsibilities, I, I wasn't really aware of what was happening 
um, on the major crime front, you know, over in Leeds, you know, although we were in the same force and we recently amalgamated, it was only amalgamated in 1974, was Leeds and into Bradford and West Yorkshire Police. Um, but, um, I, you know, whilst you, you had passing knowledge that being a murder in Bradford or one in Hudson, it, it wasn't my world, really. You know, I was getting on with my job of, as a trainee rookie probationer and, um, and doing what needed to be done there, dealing with very low-level things like, you know, speeding and parking and all this stuff. Could you just give us a sense of what the feeling was like within the police force, what the feeling was like within West Yorkshire, what the feeling was like within the country that in, in two years there were eight murders? The, things escalated, you know, rapidly um, from the first murder of Wilma McCann. I, I, think, I, I don't think anybody... Uh, certainly, myself and, and my colleagues had any sense that um, this was embarking on a serial killer, you know, spree, a serial killing spree. Far from it. Uh, murders happened, um, generally quickly solved. Um, unusual, really, for a whodunit murder to to run on. You know that yes, they did happen, but they were they, they were few and far between. They wrapped up pretty quickly. There was a sense of. This, you know, this is really serious. That the, there were now, you know, three, four, five, six murders being linked um, that were being put down to the person who was, you know, titled the Yorkshire Ripper. And and um, the early the early stages it did seem to be preying on, you know, on the on the sex worker industry at the time. And uh, and it was thought that this the killer was targeting that section. You know that, that vulnerable section who were, you know, leaving themselves um, in a position where they they were very vulnerable to someone who got his propensity to to take advantage of it. The roll call of victims makes grim listening. Wilma McCann was murdered in October '75. Just three months later, in January '76, a 42-year-old Emily Jackson was killed. A year later, in February '77, he murdered Irene Richardson. All three were from around the Chapeltown area of Leeds. He murdered in Bradford for the first time two months later. His victim was a 32-year-old Tina Atkinson in the Manningham district. All four victims so far had been sex workers. Perhaps it says something of the attitudes of the time, but the inquiry seemed to pivot in the minds of police and the public when his next victim was not. 16-year-old Jay MacDonald was murdered in Leeds in June 1977. And the killer struck four months later, murdering sex worker Jean Jordan in Manchester for the first time. We'll come back to Jean later because clues left where she was found are key. In January 78 in Bradford, he killed Yvonne Pearson, a 21-year-old sex worker. Her body remained undiscovered when, 10 days later, he killed 18-year-old Helen Ritka. This was when Chris Gregg became involved. He'd now passed his probation and his detective's training and was waiting for a detective's position to become available. I was um, back at Huddersfield when a, a murder happened in you know, the division I was working in in Huddersfield. And it was Helen Ritka, a young 18-year-old girl. And uh, she'd been... Um, picked up by, you know, a punter seemingly in the Hill House area of Huddersfield behind a timber yard called Garrard's. And it's in a pretty run-down part of town, industrial area, um, industrial side of the town. 
And um, it was known as, a, as, as an area where you know, sex workers would operate and the, there were some toilets nearby and it all had a bit of a you know, feel to it, a, of that kind of world. And um, the, the merger had happened there. Everybody knew this was likely to be another Yorkshire Ripper case. And it was, it was terrifying for the public in Yorkshire because over that two to three years now since Wilma McCann had been killed and there were now six other murders. There was actually seven others. One hadn't come out at this point. Yvonne Pearson's body hadn't been found. who had been killed just before Helen Ripka. Uh, but it's almost um, hard to describe the sense of fear that was in this part of the world in West Yorkshire. And because everybody was looking at each other, it was all over the news, and the fear was that there was a killer at large here who could strike anywhere. But already, we knew it already struck in, in Leeds and Bradford and was now you know, striking in one of the nearby towns. And, um, and the alarm, uh, the sense of um, who is this person, people looking at their own families and their own friends. Could it be anything to do with this? Because nobody knew where this person was from, were, were they very likely from this part of the world in West Yorkshire. That's where everybody assumed this person was in the middle of somewhere. The pressure was on. Seven murders that they knew about and an eighth they would soon discover. The inquiry was led by George Oldfield. He was West Yorkshire's assistant chief constable. He was a veteran of the Second World War, a very experienced and demanding leader. He was feared by many of the force's junior officers. It was his job to coordinate all the separate investigations and formulate lines of inquiries to catch the man who was the country's most wanted criminal. George Oldfield and West Yorkshire Police had the biggest burden in British policing. The force was in complete... Um, it was not in meltdown, but it was it was in a high state of stress in every respect because there were now the, these various murders running. Each of them had a different senior officer leading them. Each of them had a different team involved who were, some were moving from one to the next murder. Um, and I remember at Huddersfield, there was a huge team, maybe a hundred detectives, who there wasn't, there wasn't a dedicated murder team like now. Um, detectives had to be drawn from the various other divisions in the force. And West Yorkshire, yes, it's a, it's a massive force, you know, and, and at the time probably had 10,000 officers. Um, but they had the day-to-day -day work going on in cities like Leeds and Bradford. And to draw out, um, you know, hundreds, probably 250 officers working on these from the detective ranks, left a lot of stress back at the divisions. They had to send incident room staff. They had to send detective sergeants, detective inspectors. So it's stripping out the whole layers and layers of, of CID ranks to deal with this, what was now the serial killer case. And it's, it's hard to describe the atmosphere. Fear was underlying everything. It was, there was nothing else that was more important than this case to the police and the public at that time. And for you personally, as someone who was right at this fledgling stage of your career to suddenly 
be part of something which had been going on and been big that you hadn't been part of, but to now be included in this inquiry? At 22, it was almost surreal because it was this, the size of the investigation is what, what struck me. The one thing, and I found it right through my career with, with major, major investigations is, once detectives are together, there is an absolute joint determination in the immediate aftermath of a whodunit murder like this. We're going to get this guy. We're going to get this guy. Because they're aware of the horror and the carnage that's happened to the person only hours before. And this, the terror that somebody's gone through. And, um, and the determination is, there is a sense of that, that absolute belief, we're going to get this person. And all, all the time I was on that case and uh, another murder happened, that never wavered. It was complete belief. This is the case we're going to get this person on. All days off cancel, 15-hour shifts, you know, as the norm until further notice. Your life goes on hold as an individual. Your whole life is, is, is wrapped up in that case, literally. It was only two months later that the first letter appeared, didn't it? Uh, and that was, if I'm not mistaken, that was sent to police. The first letter was sent to police and the second letter was sent to the Daily Mirror. Um, can you just tell us when you became aware of these and what, what you thought and what the thinking was in the force at the time? I was uh, working in the incident room at Huddersfield when the first letter came in. And um, I remember um, it came into the office into the incident room in a, in a sealed um, exhibit bag, which was unusual because at the time everything was letters, documents, um, phone messages and all the rest of it. So the paper was uh, the norm. But this was unusual because people did write in all, all the time, you know, members of the public, uh, information coming from various forces on telexes, internal systems, or so mountains of paper. But this one was in a plastic bag already. So it had gone through the system internally amongst the, the commanders. Um, and it was, it was now within the incident room. And uh, I remember there seemed to be um, a sense that this was being taken as, as an important letter uh, for the reason it was in, plastic, in the plastic bag. The envelope had a few clues. There was a large rectangular postmark saying Sunderland in the top right corner. So far, Sunderland in the northeast of England had featured nowhere in the inquiry. This was new. It was also addressed to George Oldfield personally. The actual letter, it was in the bag on two sides of lined paper, unfolded so all the detectives could read through the plastic. The handwriting was angular, with few loops on letters like G's and Y's. There was a slight rightward slant to the writing. You can see the letters in full on the Behind the Crimes website. But this is what it said, and it is grim listening. Dear Sir, I'm sorry I cannot give my name for obvious reasons. I am the Ripper. I've been dubbed a maniac by the press, but not by you. You call me clever, and I am. You and your mates haven't got a clue that photo in the paper gave me fits, and 
that bit about killing myself, no chance. I've got things to do. My purpose, to rid the streets of them sluts. My one regret is that young Lassie MacDonald. Didn't know, cause changed the routine that night. Up to number eight now, you say seven, but remember Preston 75? Get about, you know. You were right, I travel a bit. You probably look for me in Sunderland. Don't bother, I'm not daft. Just posted a letter there on one of my trips. Not a bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham and other places. Worn whores to keep off streets because I feel it coming on again. Sorry about young lassie. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Might write again. Not sure last one really deserved it. Whores getting younger each time. Old slut next time, I hope. Huddersfield, never again. Too small. Close call last one. Handwriting, the, you know, the, the sloping handwriting, the spidery handwriting on the original letter, and um, and thought, interesting, is there another murder that's that, that's been linked? And you know, have we got somebody here who's obviously writing writing to the police about it? So yeah, that was that raised uh, obviously conversation and interest, and but we didn't know whether it was really just another crank kind of letter that was just being flagged up and bagged up for fingerprinting or whatever. Uh, we, 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 weren't, we weren't sure. And this was the one that said, um, you say eight, but don't forget Preston 75. Now, Preston 75 meant nothing to me, you know, literally nothing, but colleagues around the table who, who were, you know, had been um, in more senior positions than I were, they were saying it's referring to John Harrison who had been murdered in Preston in 1975. And, and, you know, we were speculating whether our commanders were now linking the two. And, th and that was it. So I was aware that a letter came in. What did you think? What, what were your thoughts? I actually, I did, I, I, I was worried because having been in the incident room when the first letter came in, and read, and I read the letter like everybody else did. I saw the full letter. I read it. And what we didn't know at the time was that lying underneath a, a rubbish tip in Bradford was, we thought, Helen Ritka was victim number seven. Victim number seven was lying under a rubbish tip in Bradford, Yvonne Pearson, who he murdered in the weeks before he killed Helen Ritka. When that became known that Helen Rip, that, that uh, Yvonne Pearson had been killed before Helen Ripka, what was thought would have made sense if these were from the genuine killer in the letter, instead of just saying, you know, don't forget Preston 75, if it had said, if you go to that rubbish tape at Bradford, you'll find my real victim number seven because you're dealing with number eight and the fact that that wasn't in if he was wanting himself to be taken seriously we thought that should have been in that letter um go and find my other victim that you've missed and then he would have been taken serious and that omission um worried people and and i was i i felt i felt there was some disquiet about it and when from the moment we were given the letter postage dates as alibi dates to work on for everybody we, we, and we were interviewed these for western yorkshire people were interviewing 
and handwriting. We were taking handwriting samples from them. We, you know, it just felt that there was a huge step change in almost belief because up until that point, we were on it with the alibis. You had to meticulously alibi people and, and even, you know, dates, weeks and weeks the murders happened now where, for example, Josephine Whittaker, the date that she was killed was the date that we would have been alibying for, the most recent one. But then you could fall back on other dates because people, you know, kept diaries a lot more than, and you said, well, you know, and, and you could work out where people were. And, and um, not always, but, you, you know, we, we could. We'd take people back in time. And, and we had to take statements of alibi. We had to do everything in a very meticulous way. Once we started being um, required to also alibi on, on the postal dates of those letters, it felt it was starting to come apart. Less than a week after the letter to George Oldfield, an envelope with a Sunderland postmark, arrived at the Manchester offices of the Daily Mirror. It's important to note that at this point, police still thought they had seven victims, but Yvonne Pearson, who'd been killed before Helen Ritka, was still a few days away from being discovered under an old sofa in Wasteground in Bradford, making it eight in total. This letter had the same handwriting as the last. In this one, the grammar is even more convoluted than the first and it is difficult to read, both for its poor English and its dreadful content. It said, Dear Sir, I've already written Chief Constable Oldfield, a man I respect, concerning the recent Ripper murders. I told him, and I'm telling you, to warn them whores I'll strike again and soon when heat cools off. About the MacDonald lassie, I didn't know that she was decent, and I'm sorry I changed my routine that night. Up to murder eight now, you say, but remember... Preston 75. Easy picking them up, don't even have to try. You think they'll learn, but they don't. Most are young lassies. Next time, try older one, I hope. Police haven't a clue yet, and I don't leave any. I'm very clever, and don't think of looking for any fingerprints, because there aren't any. And don't look for me up in Sunderland, because I'm not stupid. Just pass through the place. Not bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham. Can't walk the streets for them, whore. Don't forget warn them. I feel it coming on again if I get the chance. Sorry about Lassie, I didn't know. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Might write again after another one's gone. Maybe Liverpool or even Manchester again. Too hot here in Yorkshire. Bye. I've given advance warning, so it's yours and theirs fault. Why was he calling himself Jack the Ripper? And again the reference to Preston 1975. And why did George Oldfield and his deputy, Detective Superintendent Dick Holland, take these letters so seriously? The links that, uh, that, that seemingly made uh, the commanders believe these were genuine letters from the killer were that in the letter referring to Joan Harrison, um, Joan Harrison had been killed and, in Preston in 1975. And... The circumstances of her murder um, were similar in some respects, but dissimilar as well. And, and so there was, you, you, is, it, is it connected or not? And, and again, it's one of those you don't know at the time. You, 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 you've got to make a judgment call out. Uh, Wilf Brooks, I understand, was the superintendent leading that case in Lancashire. And he didn't think it was a Ripper murder. He thought that she'd been stamped on and um, killed by... Um, 
kicking and stamping in a garage and it was a robbery. She was a sex worker and, and she'd been killed, the body had been found. But it was the, the circumstances in which her body were found that, that drew the attention of the Ripper commanders. And seemingly she'd been bitten by the killer and um, there was uh, blood grouping from some semen samples that were taken from presumably some somebody who had you know had sex with her but there was certainly a semen trace which was a bee secretor which was only something like six or eight percent of the population had a bee blood group a bee secretor means someone who has the blood group b which is pretty rare and secretor means that the blood type secretes into bodily fluids like saliva urine and semen the person who'd bitten had got a one eighth gap between their front teeth one eighth of an inch gap between the front teeth and whoever had killed her had left her body in a little bit of a staged kind of way by placing one of her boots uh, she was face down on the floor I believe and had placed one of her boots between her legs which was unusual and had placed a coat over now Irene Richardson who was um, murdered in Leeds after Wilma McCann. Uh, Irene Richardson's body had also been left in a staged way. Um, she hadn't been stamped and kicked like John Harrison. She'd been stabbed and brutally um, murdered um, with a knife and instruments. But interestingly, um, whoever had killed her had laid her boots on the back of her legs, with the feet pointing outwards in a very strange way, and it left a coat over. So that, again, was a factor that they couldn't ignore. You know, they're scratching their heads thinking, is this connected or not? In the following weeks, Yvonne Pearson would be found in Bradford. The letters have made no reference to her. Surely they would have if they were genuine. But remember, the last letter spoke about the next victim being in Manchester. And two months after that was sent, in May 1978, 40-year-old sex worker Vera Millwood was picked up from Hume in the city. She was driven to the grounds of Manchester Royal Infirmary where she was killed. Had the letter, which was in the public domain, predicted that murder? George Oldfield thought it was genuine. Also, the killer's last few victims had all been in their 20s or late teens. Vera was 40 the last letter said his next victim would be older. Vera Millward would be the killer's only victim before a third letter arrived for Oldfield in March 1979, a year after the last. It read, Dear Officer, Sorry I haven't written, about a year to be exact, but I haven't been up north for quite a while. Wasn't kidding last time. I wrote saying the hall would be older this time and maybe I'd strike in Manchester for a change. You should have took heed. That bit about her being in hospital, funny, the lady mentioned something about it being in the same hospital before I stopped her whoring ways. The lady won't worry about hospitals now, will she? I bet you're wondering how come I haven't been to work for ages. Well, I would have been, if it hadn't been for your cursed coppers. I had the lady just where I wanted her, and was about to strike when one of your curse and police cars stopped right outside the land. He must have been a dumb copper, because he didn't say anything. He didn't know how close he was to catching me. Tell you the truth, I thought I was collared. The lady said, don't worry about coppers. Little did she know, that bloody copper saved her neck. 
That was last month. So I don't know, know when I will get back on the job, but I know it won't be Chapeltown. Too bloody hot there. Maybe Bradford's Manningham might write again if up north. Jack the Ripper. P.S. Did you get the letter I sent to the Daily Mirror in Manchester? Police were able to run tests on this letter. And a little over a week after it was sent, the murderer would strike again. Clues at this scene, combined with the letters and their reference to Joan Harrison in Preston 75, made George Oldfield sure the writer was the killer. When Josephine Whittaker was killed, murdered in Halifax on Savile Park, part of the serial killing, she'd been bitten on her breast by the killer. And it was shown that there was a one-eighth of an inch gap between the front teeth. When Ripper letter number three came in, they couldn't test for DNA at the time. It was only blood grouping. That's the best they could get forensically. DNA, forensic DNA hadn't come in to policing at that point. And the blood group was B secreta of the person who'd licked the envelope. So all the cards were stacking towards, hmm, this is interesting, 6% of the population the blood group, we've got somebody who's licked the envelope, we've got Joan Harrison's sin. Judgment call was, this is connected. There were other factors as well, which turned out to be red herrings. One was, in one of the letters, the author of the letter had actually referred to Vera Millward, in the, in the aftermath of Vera Millward's murder, had referred to the fact that, oh, well, you know, uh, she told me she'd been in that hospital. Well, she, her body was found in the grounds of Manchester Royal Infirmary. And she had been into hospital for a procedure or an operation recently. And it was thought from reading that that she must have told the killer that she'd been in hospital. What wasn't put together was that had been in the local Manchester press. It had been in the press that she'd been in because I think her husband had told the press and that, that little thing there, you know, just added weight. If they were unaware of it, which they were at the time, they just assumed that that was adding weight to it. So all these things led to um, the belief that the author of those letters was the killer. Was there any handwriting analysis done, um, looking at the structure of the grammar of the language that was used? It was. There was, um, there was a, all sorts of experts were brought in. There were linguistic experts to decide what kind of... Uh, there were experts in the handwriting, but then experts about what does the handwriting say about the character. And, of course, you know, all everybody had a view on it, and, and there were more experts that were brought in um, to look at the handwriting. And I, and I think, you know, with the handwriting, it was this person, you know, is a psychopathic nature kind of, it was all coming out, everything to fit. And um, it, it, I remember being in a briefing at Millgarth, actually, well, I, I think it was, um, I was on the, the Josephine Whitaker or the, the Jacqueline Hill murder, and there was a, a massive briefing at Millgarth Police Station with all the team, like the 150 or so detectives there, maybe 200, and George Oldfield briefed it, and and they were describing the, the um, profile that they have from the handwriting. And this wasn't somebody who is not a dangerous person. This was fitting the criteria that this person you know, could be capable of doing something like this. But it wasn't known. None of the handwriting specialists said they thought the person was disguising the handwriting. 
Not one of them. June 1979, there was development. Tell us how you found out about that. I was working on the Josephine Whittaker murder investigation at Halifax. And as a detective constable, we worked in, in pairs. Um, I was working with a, a guy called Roy Bowden, and we were going and doing our what we called action. So from the incident room, uh, the incident room generated actions, which was literally an action on a piece of a form, a carbonated form. You had the top copy given to you as the detectives, and you'd put it in your file, off you went. And, and we had within our... Um, in our, in our briefcase, all the information we needed. You know, we had all the murder dates, the alibi dates, and so on and so forth, because it was very traditionally done at that time on alibi dates. That's what we were um, on murder dates and so on and so forth. So myself and Roy, we, we were doing our work and doing these long shifts and days off cancelled. Uh, Josephine Whitaker had been murdered in the April, as, as you said, Rob, and um, it was full steam ahead. There was, this was the one we were going to catch this guy and we had radios and um, obviously before mobile phones and even pages, I think at the time, so we were on play shows. And we got a call saying um, our, our, our normal briefing times were something like um, eight o'clock in the morning, we brief at Halifax police station. And then the debriefing would be at nine o'clock at night or something like that. And um, so we'd we'd be expecting, we, it, was, it was towards tea time, it was five or six o'clock, and we got a call on radio saying, right, um, from Mr. Oldfield, uh, he wants all the team to um, report to uh, the, uh, the courtroom at Halifax at, say, seven o'clock. And we thought, yeah, we've got him. We must have, something's broken, we've got him, he's going to tell us, we've got him. And we were absolutely buzzing. You know, we thought this is a, you know, we'd never been called back before, uh, before the, you know, the appointed debriefing time. Something significant has happened here. And this was now an hour away. You know, we thought for an hour, we thought, we're driving back to Halifax to the police station. Oh, what's happened, what's happened? All the detectives are arriving and it was unusual for us not to have it in the normal debriefing room so we knew that there must be a reason for this and there were a lot of people piling in to the courtroom and it was an old victorian courtroom and um there was not enough room at the in the front where you know the barristers or the solicitors and people sit so that was all full in those in those um, rows and seats there so myself and oh, must have been hundred others were up in the gallery around the top so the whole place was packed and um george oldfield and dick holland came in and sat george oldfield sat in the magistrate's chair and dick sat next to it and they had a tape recorder on 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 uh, a table in front of them and you know box standard of its time little press tape recorder nothing fancy and they had they had this set up already, and George Oldfield, you could have heard a pin drop as soon as he started speaking, because we, we didn't know what he was going to say. We just got no idea. And what he said was, he said um, that they had received a tape, uh, which he's going to play for us, and that they are satisfied that this is from the killer. And he was saying it in a tone that was very, very sombre and serious. And... 
He said, you know, uh, we cannot go into the detail why we believe it is, but you have to take it from us. Our view is this is the killer. And I want you to listen to this very carefully, every one of you, to see if you can recall anyone you have questioned that has an accent or a voice like this. And the whole place was just silent. It was deathly silent. And he went click and played it. And they, I'm Jack. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no look catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. Good Lord. You are no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. Next time, the team of more than 100 detectives hears the tape in full. I could feel almost the hair standing up on the back of my neck. At the same time, thinking, I was straining like everybody to to hear it, thinking, have I questioned somebody? Analysts identify the neighbourhood of the man behind the message. The experts, the voice experts who listened to this, said the author of that tape, is from the castle town area of Sunderland. George Oldfield takes the monumental gamble that the recordings from the killer, not everyone so sure. We were eliminating on handwriting and on post- postage dates of letters. Now it was going a step further into eliminating just on uh, on um, Jody accident. So. This was the the latest directive from the top. This was now becoming, we thought, a little bit dangerous. And while the inquiry looks at Sunderland, in Bradford and Leeds, the murders continue. The three women lost their lives after that. I mean, the involvement of the hoaxer. Would three women have, have survived afterwards? Nobody knows. If you want to see evidence from this case, watch video clips with Chris or learn more, just subscribe to the Behind the Crimes site. The link is in the show notes. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy.